You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Are you concerned about the amount of chemicals that we're exposed to every single day? I'm not just talking about chemical pesticides either, although they have historically been particularly harmful. We're exposed to chemicals in our shampoo, our clothing, our cleaning products, and other items that we use every day that we don't fully understand the effects of. Frank von Hippel is a professor of environmental health sciences at the University of Arizona, and he's the host of the Science History Podcast. He was interviewed in episode 1540 of the Joe Rogan podcast, and he's also written a book called The Chemical Age, How Chemists Fought Famine and Disease, Killed Millions, and Changed Our Relationship with the Earth. In this episode, Frank and I discuss how chemical pesticides have been used irresponsibly in the past and in the present, which are the worst chemicals and where does glyphosate fit in, and we talk about how we can approach chemical usage responsibly moving forward in agriculture and horticulture. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, Frank, can you please tell us a little bit about your background and your experiences with chemicals? Sure. So, thanks for having me on your show, first of all. And uh, I am an ecotoxicologist, so I study contaminants in the environment, pollutants, how they impact wildlife, how they impact the environment how they impact people, uh, primarily in community-engaged research. I work within communities to study these problems. And I have projects all over the world, which has just been a great experience for me. Um, I also use what's called a One Health focus. So that's where you look at human health, environmental health, and animal health simultaneously. And uh, I was actually recruited. I'm from Alaska originally. I was a professor up there for 17 years, and I was recruited to the University of Arizona to help them develop a university-wide One Health program, research program. So I have that role as well, kind of the research administration side. And then I do a lot of writing on science history and on on pollution issues. And um, I also have a podcast on science history. So um, a lot of different things that, that engage my mind. A lot of things that all tie up too, though, because I think that in terms of like science history, that's very relevant to our chemical usage today, wouldn't you say? For sure. I mean, to really understand how we got into the mess we're in and living in an unsustainable world, you have to understand the history and and all the steps that led to this, because really people have been trying their best to solve problems, but um, a lot of times those problems have compounded in, into even worse issues over time. So can you just, before we sort of get into the reasons behind what's happening and, you know, what is actually happening in terms of like what chemicals are being um, misused these days or, you know, what chemicals have been banned, which I'd like to talk to you about, can you paint us a picture of like what can go wrong? Like what have you seen that's just absolutely unacceptable from a health perspective, from a One Health perspective? Uh, Specifically with regard to pesticides or chemicals in general? I think um, let's stick with pesticides for now. Yeah, sure. So from the perspective of problems with pesticides, we we have this issue where over and over again, with every new class of pesticides, we, we as society overuse them. And so you have a very powerful tool, but then because of its overuse, the pests evolve resistance and the chemical is no longer very effective against them, but it still causes tremendous damage to wildlife. It still causes a lot of human health problems. And uh, this has been a complex issue that that started with the very first use of pesticides in kind of a modern industrial setting in the 1880s, all the way through to um, today's pesticide industry. And so these are tools that are important. They have, they have their place, but because we overuse them, uh, their, their functionality goes down and the damage goes up. So you said that they have their use. So I think a lot of people will be sitting here listening right now and being like, what do you mean chemicals have their use? Chemicals are evil. They're bad. So why do people use chemical pesticides, which include herbicides and rodenticides and insecticides, all all kinds of pesticides? 
That's right. And you made an important point there, which most people don't realize. Most people conflate the word pesticide with insecticide, but insecticides are just one type of pesticide. And actually the most used pesticides are herbicides that are designed to kill plants that we don't want um, competing with crops and so on. But there, there are some important reasons why societies, people have used pesticides over the last 150 years. And one big reason is to prevent famine. And so uh, I, I actually started out my book about the history of pesticides by covering the Irish potato famine, because it was this, this um, the biggest famine up until that point in recorded history. It had a profound impact, not only on Ireland, but on the world. Over a million Irish people died in the famine, over a million emigrated. It profoundly changed the, the nature of the United States, of Canada, of New Zealand, Australia, all of the countries where Irish people emigrated to. And that was a famine that had they had chemicals that could have prevented the water mold from destroying the potatoes, it could have been prevented. But the science wasn't there yet. The understanding of what causes plant disease wasn't there yet. So preventing famine is a definitely important aspect of use of pesticides. Another really important aspect in history has been fighting infectious diseases, vector-borne diseases, things like malaria and yellow fever that are vectored by typically insects or rodents, things like that. So so malaria is vectored by the Anopheles mosquito, yellow fever by Aedes aegypti mosquito. And you have also diseases like bubonic plague that are carried by fleas that are on rats and many different diseases that are really terrible diseases and we wanna stop them in their tracks when possible. And uh, I think a good example of this is typhus. Um, typhus is a disease that, that really is the disease that decided who won and who lost wars throughout human history because it's carried by the body louse, the vector by the body louse. And when people are in crowded, dirty conditions of war, they, that's when typhus spreads. And even in the Irish potato famine, the, the, what actually killed the Irish was typhus and relapsing fever, both diseases that are carried by the body louse. So during World War II, uh, when DDT came into military use, when the U.S. military went into uh, Naples, Italy, and uh, discovered that a typhus outbreak was occurring, they engaged in a sanitation program uh, for, from December uh, 1943 through February 1944, where every single Neapolitan and every soldier was, was uh, sprayed down with DDT. And it stopped a typhus outbreak in its tracks, the first time in world history that it happened. So clearly preventing disease outbreaks has is an important element of using pesticides. Uh, and then, of course, we use it for increasing productivity of our of our farms and increasing crop yields, and um, and we use it in our homes, and that's more of a convenience. So, the problem again is massive overuse of these chemicals has has made them ineffective, and we've lost powerful tools. We we can no longer use DDT, for example, to to fight uh, typhus or malaria because the the insects have evolved resistance due to overuse of the chemical. So that brings us to my next question, which is, you know, what are some of the drawbacks of using them? And you've just identified one of the drawbacks, which is resistance. Can you just explain what's going on there a little bit further? Sure. Maybe a good example to, to for people to understand the evolution of resistance is think about if, if you get sick and you take an antibiotic, you have billions of microbes in your microbiome. We have more microbes in us than we have human cells in us. And so you get sick, you take an antibiotic, you kill most of the microbes in your gut. And um, the idea is to kill whatever's causing the illness, but in the process, you also kill most of the other microbes, including the beneficial ones. Well, the ones that survive that antibiotic, they're the ones who are now going to reproduce and replace that population. So you've actually had evolution occur in the microbial population in your own gut over the course of a few days. And the same thing happens with pests. So I gave the example of DDT and we, we so massively use, overuse DDT by the time World War II ended and entered, entered into widespread agricultural use and home use, we were using it for everything from keeping uh, flies off of beaches so they didn't bother us when we were sunbathing to spraying down concert halls to using it on airplanes so there's no mosquitoes or flies on the plane 
to putting it in wallpaper for babies' nurseries to keep flies out of the nursery, to putting it in paint. I mean, it was everywhere. And as a consequence, of course, it killed most of the flies. Mosquitoes are a kind of fly. It killed most of the flies. It killed a lot of other insects. But those that survived, that just happened to have the genetics that allowed them to not be killed by DDT, then were the ones that reproduced. And so they, they quickly replaced the population with insects that were resistant to DDT. It happens quickly. So with DDT, it was within a couple of years of first widespread use. We had evolution of resistance all over the world to DDT in the in the pest populations. Really great point. Um, I've so like let's just say there's one in a million insects are resistant to that particular. They have that gene that's resistant to that particular chemical. Well, if we wipe out everything except for that one in a million, well then we've got let's say five insects left. They're all going to breed with each other. And what's going to happen then? Their offspring are going to be completely resistant. One of the ways that I've heard of that um, being combated is, you know, without having to give up chemicals, um, which, you know, that's a question in itself. I'd like to delve into that a little bit more, you know, whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing. But they'll leave like a, a sacrificial crop there, like just some radishes or mustard weed or whatever. And let's say you've got your cabbage white butterfly, it's going to eat both of your crop and those weeds, but you're only spraying your crop. So those weeds there next to it are constantly giving food off to the to the insects that aren't going to die. And then those those genes are sort of getting fed back into the gene pool, if that makes sense. There is a name for it. I can't remember what that's called. Yeah, that's a great example of the the many things that we need to be doing in order to reduce our use of chemicals and have them be more effective. And uh, we can certainly talk more about that, but it is one example of, of combating this, uh, this problem. Uh, also, uh, many of the pesticides that we use are, are so-called broad spectrum pesticides. They, they wipe out uh, really large numbers of animals, not just the target pest, but many other animals. And in the process, we actually wipe out the biological controls of those pests. So not only do we kill, mm. say, the uh, the grasshopper that's eating the crop, but we kill the parasite of that grasshopper. Or not only do we kill the uh, the 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 mites, but we kill the spiders that would normally eat them. Mm. And so, and, or we kill the birds that would eat the mosquitoes. So we actually wipe out our own the the natural bi biological control mechanisms in the process of targeting against the pest. And and that's another problem in addition to resistance. That's a huge issue. Um, of eliminating the biological controls that are there. Mm, yeah, well said. Yeah, there's a knock-on effect. Um, you know, if we're going to spray mycorrhizal fun uh, fungi on our crops, uh, fungicides on our crops, yeah, well, our crops are supposed to have mycorrhizal fungi and that we're going to limit the health. And, you know, like you say, it's like giving an antibiotic. Well, what's coming in after that? What's coming in to fill that gap? Because nature hates a, a vacuum. She wants to fill it. That's right. And, and what comes in to fill it is typically more of, of the pest or <laughs> maybe even want. a different pest because now <laughs> there's, there's a, a competitive release. The, the, uh, um, some organisms that may be problematic that previously couldn't compete with the naturally occurring animals now ca can. Um, you get new kinds of weeds coming in that compete with crops. You get new kinds of insects coming in. Um, and, and and actually, a lot of those insects that come in are not only problematic for agriculture, but they're also vectors of disease. So there's a number of these knock-on effects, like you point out. So I just wanted to touch on, there are many more drawbacks. I mean, we could have a whole episode just on the drawbacks and go through specifically chemical by chemical, what are the drawbacks. But just one more drawback that I'd like to bring up before we move on is um, the drawback to human health. Can you speak on the the, historically, the effects that chemical pesticides have had on human health and i think we'll go we'll we'll talk about um you know specifically what's still good and what's still bad now but um yeah historically what has been the effect on human health looking at the history of the impacts of pesticides on human health is actually a great way to understand the concept we have in ecotoxicology of regrettable replacements that is we have mm -hmm. one chemical for a purpose and then when it's discovered that it's toxic in some way, we replace it with another chemical. And then later that's found to be toxic. So if we look at the history of, of uh, insecticides as an example, we used to use prior to World War II, a lot of uh, heavy metal based uh, insecticides, things like lead arsenate um, pesticides. And 
the problem with this is that a lot of people were getting lead poisoning. Like if you ate apples that weren't washed, you could die of lead poisoning because of the lead residues on the apple. So these were pesticides, lead, lead, mercury, and so on based pesticides, arsenic, that they're highly persistent, they're highly toxic. And back then the regulatory environment was such that you could prevent interstate commerce in the United States of compounds that contain these pesticides, but not within state commerce. And similar issues occur in other countries. So we had a lot of poisons, a lot of kids dying from, from lead poisoning or, or even just having neurological damage. During World War II, the major synthetic organic pesticides were developed. Organic meaning having a carbon skeleton to them. Synthetic, you know, they're human-made um, chemicals. And the two big classes that came out of World War II were the organochlorine pesticides, things like DDT, and the organophosphate pesticides. And uh, the organochlorine ones were the were the ones that dominated after World War II because they were broad spectrum, spectrum, they were highly persistent, so they would wipe out pests for a long time. DDT was the most important of these. But it turned out that they also caused problems with human health. And by the 1960s, the average woman in the United States had levels of DDT in her breast milk that were about four times higher than what was allowed for sale in cow's milk at the grocery store. So that is really disturbing. And the reason for that is we're just chronically exposed through food, through through um, use in the home, through all of this widespread use. So when it was realized that these chemicals were building, and also they're fat soluble, so they build up over mm -hmm. a lifetime. They constantly build up in levels. When that was discovered that, that uh, these organochlorine pesticides were were um were building up in breast milk um in fat tissue were building up over a lifetime they some of them are carcinogenic but they're also what we call endocrine disrupting compounds so they they mimic estrogen that cause other endocrine effects that causes developmental abnormalities in the fetus so you have children that are born with things like ambiguous genitalia um, but also causes delayed onset illnesses like prostate cancer and breast cancer later in life because of all that and because of the environmental damage that they caused, uh, we switched in the 1980s to organophosphate insecticides. The advantage of those is they break down in the environment much faster, so there's far less residues on food. It's much safer for consumers. The problem with them is they're far more toxic. These are chemicals that were developed by Gerhard Schrader, a Nazi chemist for the German military during w World War II. And uh, the very first German nerve agents, Tabin and then Sarin, were, were these kinds of chemicals, but they're also developed into insecticides. And they're very effective insecticides, but incredibly dangerous to handle. And so what we did is we traded off risk on the part of consumers for risk of the farm workers. And a lot of farm workers started getting sick and dying from exposure to these chemicals in the 90s. By the late 1990s, they were the most prevalent insecticides in the world. But because of these health problems, we then made a switch to the neonicotinoid insecticides. And the, that means new nicotine. Nicotine is actually one of the oldest insecticides. It's been used for centuries, naturally occurring nicotine. But this is a synthetic version of nicotine, much safer for mammals, much safer for the farm workers. But they do have pretty broad environmental impacts on insect populations and birds. So they have their own costs as well. Mm. And that's just been the history of replacing one class of chemicals with another as, as these problems become evident. Very well said. So I guess I'd really like to um, sort of um, talk about some of the chemicals that are no longer in use now. So you've talked about DDT. I mean, I suppose it's probably not as prevalent as it used to be, is it? Right. DDT was uh, banned first in the United States in 1972. It was actually the very first action by the newly created EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. And then countries around the world followed suit. Originally, in the United States, it was not banned entirely. It was banned for most uses in the U.S., but it was still allowed in so-called emergencies, which might even include an insect outbreak in forestry. It was also not banned for export. So we continued to export it to other countries who would use it on their crops. Then we would import their crops <laughs> to the United States. Um, it was then banned by the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants in 2001. And so most countries in the world banned it at that point, except for there's an exception for malaria control. So now it's only used basically for 
malaria control. There are it's very easy to make, and so there are still places where countries are making it in domestically and using it domestically for for other purposes. But primarily, it's used for malaria control. Mm. Well, my mum got dengue fever, and I can say it's not a fun time. Either malaria or dengue fever, they're not nice. Yeah, and dengue fever is actually vectored by the same mosquito that vectors yellow fever, Aedes aegypti. There you go. So what are some other chemicals that we're like no longer using because they're unsafe? I guess Agent Orange would be one, right? Yeah, Agent Orange is a really interesting case because uh, so Agent Orange was actually a chemical mixture of two different herbicides that um, that were produced as defoliants and used by the United States in the Vietnam War for two purposes. One was to defoliate the forest so that U.S. and allied forces could see the Viet Cong, and secondly, to destroy their crops uh, in order to deprive them of a food base. And the the story of of uh, Agent Orange is is um, really quite tragic because in the rush to make uh, vast quantities of this chemical, there there were I think twenty million gallons sprayed on on Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Um, we uh, produced them in a process that had the side effect of making dioxin as a incidental byproduct, and so Agent Orange had high levels of dioxin in it not on purpose. And dioxin is carcinogenic, it's endocrine disrupting, it causes developmental abnormalities. So among Vietnamese children who were in the womb at the time when their, when their mothers were exposed, it caused a lot of birth defects. And you can still go to Ho Chi Minh City and find kids living together. They're now, of course, my age, living together who um, are in these kind of um, uh, communities uh, of people with birth defects. And among the GIs who fought there, who were exposed to it, there were high rates of prostate cancer and other estrogen-mediated cancers. So, uh, and the in the U.S. military, the um, uh, the VA Veterans Affairs for a long time would not uh, treat those based as wartime injuries. It took decades for that to be become um, allowed as a, as a wartime injury. Uh, so. Uh, the problem with Agent Orange, however, was not limited to the incidental byproduct of dioxin. The herbicides in use in Agent Orange themselves also cause birth defects, are also endocrine disrupting, and that was actually known, and that information was hidden from the public for a long time. So uh, there, there's kind of a, a nefarious story buried, buried in that whole, that whole um, unfortunate case. Uh, we still use 2,4-D, one of the um, herbicidal ingredients. Of, it's still in widespread use around the world. Um, but um, nowadays, it's synthesized without, uh, at least hopefully, without the incidental production of dioxin. Mm. Yeah, my dad has stories of, um, I think it was 2,4-D. He's got, you know, he grew up on a farm and he tells stories about how he had his arm in the drum, just mixing it with his arm. And that was pretty normal back then. I think, um, yeah, you know, if you're going to use any chemical, particularly something that's pretty nasty like that, you're going to want to read the label and you're going to want to follow that label and wear all your appropriate PPE and everything like that. Like in this day and age, um, I mean, that was a different age, but even me, like as a gardener, I've sprayed without long pants on. I've sprayed um, glyphosate with shorts on and, you know, we should never really be doing that. We should really be fully kitted up with um, all of the appropriate safety gear, goggles, mask, the whole thing. It's just not worth it. Yeah, actually, you're bringing up a really important point, which is if you're looking at the commercial agricultural sector in most countries now, at least in in um, most developed countries, the the uses of those pesticides are highly regulated. The the applicators go through rigorous training. They have to wear all appropriate PPE and so on. However, you go to your local Home Depot or gardening store, you see these rows of, of, of chemicals like Roundup glyphosate uh, for purchase. You think, oh, it's just for sale next to the Windex mm, and the WD-40. Yeah. It must be safe. And people don't bother to read the labels. If they do, they don't use the appropriate precautions. And that doesn't just include the use of PPE, but also precautions like wind direction and velocity, how long you have to vacate the area, effects on, on children. It's you know, if you if you ask somebody, is it more important to you that you don't have dandelions in your yard or that your children don't get cancer? Everyone's say, of course, I, I 
uh, it's much more important my kids don't get cancer. But what they then don't understand is they're spraying carcinogens on their lawn that their kids are playing and their kids have much higher exposure than they do as adults and they can get cancer. So so these are at the consumer end of the homes, home, you know, home use end. That's where a lot of the problems are. Absolutely agree. And I think that that sort of takes us to forward a couple of questions, but we may as well ask that now, talk about it now, because, you know, a lot of people, they say, oh, let's ban glyphosate. But like, okay, but let's have a talk about how that looks like in reality, because there are going to be places where it actually is needed. Like within natural resource management, I think a lot of that work really can't be done affordably without the use of glyphosate. And there's a reason why they use it. It's because it has, it breaks down really quickly um, you know, it kills it. We can guarantee it's going to kill things. Whereas some of the some of the other products, so-called natural products that desiccate the leaves, well, anything with a taproot, that's just going to live on. So yes, it has an effect on um, bee microbiome, I believe. So it makes it harder for them to get home. It doesn't necessarily kill beehives. Uh, you know, it removes the food source. It removes the flower for them. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot worse products out there. So um, what do you think about the arguments? around banning chemicals? Is it a little bit more nuanced or what do you think? Yeah, for sure it's more nuanced. And it really the problem to overcome is how do we avoid overuse? So let me just go back to DDT as an example. DDT would still be an incredibly effective public health tool today if we had only just used it for public health. The fact that we used it in agriculture and home use and wallpaper and so on, and we used it at such a massive scale, meant that it became of no use to anyone anymore. And so that would have been a case where I would have advocated back in, in 1945, hey, this is a chemical that's incredibly powerful at preventing diseases like typhus, malaria, yellow fever, if we just do spot treatments as outbreaks are beginning and only use it for that. And so... If we had a framework, a regulatory framework where we could actually enforce that and do that, that would be the way to do it. That hasn't been the reality. And mm. and then the other thing that's not been the reality is we we replace we we ban a dangerous chemical like DDT, but then we replace it with something else that might even be more dangerous. And that's that regrettable replacement side. So we have to look at it in the big picture, like you're saying, of saying, okay. If we ban a chemical, what are we going to replace it with? Is it actually safer in all of these different respects? And will we actually use it at a level that's that's appropriate for what the problem is? And so far, that's not been the case for any of these chemicals. And let's face it, we could say no, no more glyphosate, but there will be a cost to that. And um, that needs to be taken into the cost-benefit analysis. And the cost to that will be, um, unless we can find a replacement for it and from talking with people, I don't know if we do have a replacement for it. A lot of weeds are just going to get a stranglehold within our beautiful country, and then we're going to lose biodiversity and, and X, Y, Z. That's going to continue down the line with those repercussions. Yeah, with a case like glyphosate specifically, I would say that it most uses of glyphosate should be banned. It should have restricted uses. That um, so, for example, it's been used in the United States in controlling invasive plants in fragile. Uh, uh, desert grassland ecosystem here in Arizona, as an example. Um, it, and so it has some uses that are appropriate where there, there may be nothing better, but most of the use of glyphosate is overuse. And, mm-hmm. and uh, glyphosate does have quite a few health effects for people as well as massive impacts on the environment. Another way to look at it is Whatever chemicals we use, we should be using them sustainably. And there's few examples where we do this. Sustainably mean we could use them at this level forever and achieve the purpose without causing more problems than than we're solving. Um, that's certainly not the case with glyphosate. So the way we're using it now is completely inappropriate and it should be banned in the sense that most of those uses, it's not, not a good use of the chemical. But then again, uh, there may be specific areas where it is the right tool for a precision job. Yeah, I've got two case studies for you. So the first one is me as a an ornamental gardener within domestic gardens or even within parks and gardens as well. So I love my glyphosate. There were really times when as a professional gardener, you sort of look at um, some places and you go, okay, I need my glyphosate there. But then it becomes a crutch because then you're like, oh, well, this garden bed here, it's just, just they said to spray the garden bed, so I'll just spray the whole thing. And then I'll come and do that every fortnight or every month 
um, for basically on an ongoing basis forever, rather than just chucking down some mulch or, you know, planting some ground cover in there. And um, so it does become a crutch and I can see that. Um, do you think that there's still a place for someone working within public parks and gardens to have that license to use glyphosate? Or do you think that that's on the side that, no, we need to be thinking of alternatives there? Yeah, so my my opinion on this is that we need to be looking at alternatives when it's for for beauty rather than for public health. And that um, there, there are cases, you brought up conservation cases before, where you may need chemicals to prevent uh, say a native plant species from going extinct, that would be a different kind of case because there you're talking about a conservation biology case. But for 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 gardens where where you're looking for beauty, we should be using alternative approaches like biological controls and and making sure that we have the right uh, mycorrhizal soil uh, kind of situation that we need for for vigorous plant growth and the right nutrients and the right diversity of plants and and hitting um, hitting pests with mechanical means first. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do to minimize or prevent use of chemicals. I think a good model is integrated pest management where there is some use of chemicals, but it's minimized and and it's done in a smart way. I, I can give you another example from agriculture. There's a there's a um, example coming out of Israel now where there's sensors in date palm trees and the sensors will detect in each tree when there's an insect outbreak. So they're able then to spot treat that tree before those mm. insects can spread to any other trees. So we should be using means, everything at our disposal to minimize chemical use. And that would include in ornamental gardens. Or another case that you kind of reminded me of when I was a kid, and even as an adult growing up in Alaska, uh, there were pest, uh, pest applicators who had contracts with the school district. And they would come in and spray every month uh, mm. the schools, whether they needed it or not. And and it took a major effort by a lot of different groups and people to get the policy changed so that they would only come in and spray when there was a pest outbreak in the school. There's so much resistance to that kind of just common sense approach. And now that's the policy there. And the amount of chemicals being used is a tiny fraction of what was used before. So, you know, we can get most of the way we need to go with just common sense. And then we can probably debate what to do about that last 10 percent. Yeah, I completely agree. So within your IPM, uh, I guess we may as well talk about this now. So you've got cultural controls, you've got, um, you know, changing the conditions, like let's design something from the start, let's put mulch down, you know, or if it's a, you know, if it's on a hill, like mulch doesn't stay on a hill. So let's put a ground cover there or something else that's going to suppress those weeds so that we're not tying into the ongoing maintenance, ongoing spraying. So if we can reduce that. And then, as you say, you know, we've still got that chemical control at the end. Like if we've got a, um, a heritage fig tree or something like that, you know, it's 200 years old, one of the first whatever, whatever, whatever planted by whoever back in the day or, you know, it's an endemic tree or something like that. Well, maybe it's worth it to use chemicals so that we don't lose that particular tree. That's right. So you're taking a, a like you said before, a nuanced approach. You're looking at the individual situation rather than, uh, just relying on chemicals. And we know from the last 130 years of history that when we just rely on chemicals, it always creates more problems than it solves. And the the pests evolve resistance faster than we can develop means of controlling them. So we have to go to an approach like IPM and organic agriculture and all of the things that, that are associated with that. We have to use biological controls and mechanical controls and crop rotation and diversity of crops and the right soils and 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 we also need to consider new technologies. Uh, I mentioned sensors, but we should also consider genetically modified organisms for, for certain applications. Like in agriculture, if you can produce a rice crop that has a higher protein yield so that you can support more people on less acreage, and that's preventing famine and preventing hunger, and at the same time, giving a better product with less chemical use, to me, that, that makes sense. What doesn't make sense to me is genetically modifying organisms such that farmers have to buy seeds from GMO companies, um, things like that. But if we're smart about these technologies, I think we can greatly reduce our chemical use. I've just got one more um, chemical, uh, one more glyphosate case study to throw at you. So wheat, a lot of people don't know this, but um, before you can harvest wheat, you have to dry the plant out. Now you can wait for that plant to dry. It takes a long time, or you can just spray the crop with glyphosate. 
And the thing about glyphosate is it doesn't just sit on the leaves. It's actually a systemic pesticide, which or systemic herbicide, which is a kind of pesticide, which means that it goes within the system. So you're actually eating the grains. They're probably going to have glyphosate within them. Would I be wrong in saying that? It depends on how long it is before that grain is eaten. So we would have to look up the half-life of glyphosate, but it with all of these, uh, all of these, I, I can tell you a little bit about the systemic um, pesticides in general, but with all of these chemicals, uh, they, each one has its own degradation half-life. And, and so if the crop is being consumed before it's broken down, then of course, yes, you're getting them. That's, that was the problem with the organochlorine pesticides that they, they actually persist for decades and some of them even longer. And so it was basically impossible to hold on to the crop long enough that you could serve it without residues being present. With the more modern uh, uh, pesticides, most of those residues are gone by the time that we eat the food, but not all of them. And it depends on which specific chemical and the timing of the crop harvesting and, the, and then how long it, it is before it's served. And then of course we wanna eat our, our crops fresh, right? We have the best nutritional value and the best taste if they're fresh. And so that's also in conflict with with how long it takes these things to break down. Mm. Yeah, well said. And and just again, just to just to say, this is not a simple uh, simple topic. Um, you know, I like there being two dollar fifty loaves of bread in the shop. I don't want every single loaf of bread to be twelve dollars because I can't afford to buy that every week. Like, um, you know, who like I'm? I consider myself like I'm lucky. I'm lucky I can afford to buy all the food I can. Some people can't even afford to buy food at the moment. So what are they going to do if suddenly, you know, glyphosate's banned and prices go up? And we all we know that the that the shopping, the grocery store chains aren't going to be the ones who lose there. It's going to be the farmers and it's going to be the consumers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I, I think we need to expand your question to conventional uh, growth of crops versus organic growth of crops because conventionally grown crops are less expensive than organic and they're less expensive because the production is higher. And so you're getting more crops per acre, even after you weigh in the cost of the pesticides, it's less expensive to grow more crops when you use pesticides. And so what I have done myself, because most of my life, I haven't been able to afford to buy only organic produce. Um, and what I've advised other people to do is to use the calculators that are available. There's smartphone apps, there's there's websites um, where like Environmental Working Group has one where you can look up what are the pesticide residues on different types of food. And then you can make your buying decisions uh, based on that. So you might decide, for example, that you're going to spend that extra money on organic strawberries because of the high pesticide residues on strawberries, but you're not going to spend it on something with low residues. You know, maybe your locally grown bananas are low and then you, you're peeling and you're, you're eating a low residue crop. And, and that would be my advice is that you can be, just like we've talked about being smart about chemical use, we can be smart about our household budget and where we, where we use that. Another thing is that a great deal of the chemicals we're exposed to is our own fault from chemicals we're using in our own homes. And we don't need to do that. And so, and I think we could, we could have a major impact on our health and our children's health by avoiding that. I'll just give you one example. When I first moved to Tucson uh, many years ago, I lived here in the late nineties for three years. I came home from work one day and we had something like a million ants in our home. The The columns of ants were about, about, 10 centimeters wide, and they went all through the house. So what most people would do is they would instantly call their their pesticide applicator to come deal with it. What I did is I followed the this army of ants upstream until I found the crack in the wall where they were coming through. I spackled up the crack in the wall so that no more could come in. I got out my vacuum. I used two vacuum bags, and I vacuumed up <laughs> every single ant. And within a couple hours, there were no more ants in my house. So that was a solution that required no chemicals. And I had a baby at the time. It didn't, it didn't, it wasn't poisoning my baby. Um, same thing when I've had wasp infestations, I've used a vacuum cleaner. I put on protection, you know, uh, goggles and mask and everything. And I, and I use a shop vac and I go to the entrance to the hive, turn it on and suck them all up. And so there's things you can do that don't require chemicals. And whenever that's the case, you should do it. I would say that 99% um, of the in-home chemical use, you shouldn't be doing. There are some cases where we need to, 
Like if you have a termite infestation and it's actually going to cause your house to fall down, then you have to deal with it chemically. But very few things we think we have to use chemicals for, we actually do. Absolutely. And I'd like to challenge people listening right now. What are the ways that you can use your noggin, your brain, your knowledge as a horticulturist to bypass those chemicals? Like be inventive, like spacking up the crack in the wall. It's so logical and inventive and, you know, it's not even really thinking outside the box because it's actually quite obvious when you think about it, isn't it? That's right. And, And you don't necessarily have to be a practical person who can come up with these solutions yourself because there are many good websites that will tell you what to do. Mm. And so if if you don't know, you have a pest infestation, you can look it up. Um, I remember one time I, I, had, um, I had a wasp infestation at, I have a cabin in Alaska at my cabin and, and uh, I, I was not sure what to do about it. It was above uh, where I could reach with, um, with a vacuum. And so I asked my dad for advice and he he's never used pesticides in his life. And he's always been an advocate against use of pesticides. And he said, well, why don't you try spay, spraying bear spray at it? Because in Alaska, we carry bear spray. We have a lot of grizzly bears and black bears. And it's a, it's a pepper spray, but you can be 30, you can be 10 meters away from your target and spray it. And his thought was that it'll change the colony odor and then they'll probably all kill each other. So I gave it a try <laughs> and it worked. And and killed the colony killed themselves. So, so sometimes there's just, you know, just try something, but also look it up online and find a good solution. That's brilliant. So I've got an IPM episode. Episode 33 intro to integrated pest management would be a really good listen for anybody who would like to know more about this, because I, like, I don't want to focus on that too much in this episode. Um, yeah definitely worth a listen in terms of going through your different methods of um, cultural, biological, genetic, um, what else we got? Chemical, regulatory, and there's one other method of um, integrated pest management that's just escaping me right now, but well worth a listen. Frank, what are the, like, a lot of people talk about, like, the, the glyphosate's carcinogenic. When I looked up the World Health Organization's rating on it, it was as um, as carcinogenic as red meat. I mean, take the World Health Organization for, you know, whether you think that that's a reputable source or not. Like, what, what are the dangers of glyphosate? So the, the thing that's gotten the most attention is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a type of cancer that animal studies and in vitro studies indicate um, glyphosate causes this type of cancer. And there's been a lot of debate about this because the question is not whether glyphosate causes can cause this type of cancer. We know from animal studies that it does, but whether the levels of exposure that people get are enough to cause this kind of cancer. But in order to really understand that question, you not only need to understand the exposure a person has to glyphosate, but also the exposure that they have to the many other chemicals that interact with glyphosate. So we don't live in a world of one chemical at a time. We live in a complex soup of chemicals. In fact, most people are surprised to find out that, that or maybe I'll turn this on you. If you had to guess how many synthetic chemicals have been produced and released in the environment, what would you guess? Way more than I know. I have access to a few of my, I have my little kit that I've used in my past and I know the ones I know and I know the ones that are bad, but I would say thousands. I don't know, hundreds, 10? Well, is it based on, are you talking about like? Not just pesticides, but all synthetic all, chemicals. How many do you think are out oh, there? Geez. No, I, I wouldn't even guess how many. So the, the best estimate right now is that there's 350,000 synthetic whiz. chemicals that are in the environment. And so we have a, rudimentary understanding of how two different chemicals interact, sometimes three, Mm. but we have no concept of how 350,000 chemicals interact Hmm. with each other. And from studies in the lab, looking at how glyphosate interacts with other chemicals, we know that there are interactive effects, there's endocrine disrupting effects that that occur through these interactions. Um, We don't have a good understanding right now of the probability of someone getting cancer from glyphosate alone, just, just on the basis of most people are not getting exposed to enough of it. But you take glyphosate, you take all these other things we're exposed to, and and yes, there's a high probability that there are uh, ill health effects occurring. And it's not just cancers that we have to worry about. It's also things like uh, neurological development of the fetus, because glyphosate is also neurotoxic to the fetus. So if you have a woman who has levels of glyphosate in her 
in her body. It's circulating in her blood. It's going to get into the fetus and that can cause neurological problems. So it's very complex. And there's also more subtle health effects like on the eyes. Um, and uh, But the, the, the lion's share of the attention has gone to cancer. And, and the answer I would say with cancer is that we know it can cause cancer in laboratory studies of animals and in in vitro studies, petri dish kinds of studies. And if someone's exposed to enough, like in an occupational setting, it can cause cancer. Yeah, I, I shake my head at the amount of glyphosate that I've been exposed to throughout my life. And whether a person develops cancer is also depending on many other things. It's also their genetic background. So some people are resistant to developing cancer. Some people are vulnerable to mm. developing cancer. And it depends on their environment. It depends on what they're exposed to in the womb. It depends on what they're exposed to now. It depends on stress levels. I mean, you name it. So it's not a simple question. Not at all. So Frank, what about other chemicals? Like what are we still using today that you think maybe we should look at uh, some sort of regulation there or heavier regulation? Right. So I, I think a good way to answer this is to go back to what I just said about there being about 350,000 synthetic chemicals that are in the environment. And if we ask ourselves, what do we know about those chemicals? About 10,000 of those have been studied with any degree of, of rigor. And of those 10,000, maybe about 1,000 we understand really well, the toxicology. So this means that we know almost nothing about the <laughs> toxicology of the vast majority of the chemicals out there. And that's a real problem. It's not just even even if we ignored the interactions, we don't even know chemi one chemical at a time for most of the chemicals out there, what they do. Uh, uh, recently in the news, the, P the per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, have had a lot of attention because they're contaminating drinking water all over the world. And you hear about people talking about PFOA and PFOS and several of these chemicals. There's probably over 10,000 PFAS chemicals. They're all synthetic. There's, they don't occur in nature. They're all highly persistent. And four of them have been well studied. So to, to say, you know, what do we need to worry about? We need to worry about the vast majority of synthetic chemicals out there. And we need a different approach to studying them. We can't, we can't keep up with their production. They're being new chemicals are being produced at a rate that's thousands of times faster than our ability as scientists to study their toxicology. So we have to completely change the way we do this. We have to have the toxicology studied before chemicals are allowed to be used. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way it is. It seems like we need to take a longer term perspective. Like um, instead of just being like, oh, well, we have this problem right now. We need to fix it. Instead, maybe we need to be thinking like, okay, we're going to have this problem next year. It's going to be here for the next decade. Actually, this problem's always going to be here. So how are we going to approach this intelligently? That's exactly right. It, it, you take any modern problem, whether it's, it's what we're discussing with pesticide use or whether it's climate change or biodiversity loss, we have to be looking at everything from the point of sustainability. We shouldn't be saying we can never use chemicals. We should be saying, okay, if we want to plan that this earth is both beautiful and habitable forever, what do we need to do to make that the case? If we want our descendants to live in a world full of wildlife and with abundant food and and good opportunity, what do we need to make, do to make that happen? So if if I, I'm working on a, a project down in on the border between Arizona and Mexico, looking at pesticide exposures and farm workers, and there there's about 240 pesticides in widespread use in that agricultural sector. About a quarter of them are considered hazardous. Mm. So, you know, why aren't we looking first at those quarter and saying, okay, what can we do to replace the 25% of the chemicals that are in widespread use that we know are hazardous. Let's start there. And then after we deal with those, let's start looking, understanding better. And then also, why is it that all over the world, we have to prove something is unsafe to get it off the market rather than chemical mm. companies have to prove it's safe to get it on the market? That's a mind shift. And I think you're 100% right. This is our public safety where, yeah, the, the number one priority should be people's safety. You're right. We should prove it safe. But then I guess the other argument is it's really hard to prove something's safe. It's easy to prove something's not safe. You know, you're bringing up a good point. And, and uh, there, there are groups, including people that I work with, who are developing tools to allow rapid testing of chemicals on, uh, on 
in a cost-effective way in order to go to this paradigm shift of testing for safety first. And so, uh, for example, there are certain clusters of disease that we know are commonly caused by chemical exposures, and those can be grouped into half a dozen uh, disease clusters. And so you can design testing regimens around those disease clusters, and you can use a combination of rapid in vitro tests where you're doing tests with cells or, or cell cultures along with some limited animal testing in order to have rapid throughput of chemical testing. I'm working with a group, we actually have a paper under review right now about how we need to shift to this kind of approach so that we can not constantly be overwhelmed by the number of chemicals out there, but have a means of testing for, for safety before they're introduced. And uh, so that that's a solvable problem. And, um, but but we also face the difficulty that the chemical industry has vast resources are constantly fighting any kind of regulation mm. rather than mm. trying to be part of the solution of saying, yeah, we too need to be doing this in a sustainable way and we should be testing and finding the ways to do this in a cost-effective manner. All right. So what should we do about chemical pesticides then? Should we ban them? I mean, what, what do you think should happen? So where we are right now in the arc of human history, I would say that what we need to be doing is is having a combination of integrated pest management and organic agriculture and constant innovation within both of those to increase our productivity of our crops, having a much greater diversity of crops. I know this is something that your listeners are interested in. And, and I've also interviewed experts on this from my podcast about having many more varieties of crops, having ways to preserve those crop varieties. We create great vulnerabilities for ourselves with our monocultures that we rely on. And so that's a huge, huge issue. And, and so there is a place for chemicals in that, like we've discussed, but that, that place is a tiny fraction of what we're doing right now. So it's a nuanced, um, maybe rec legislation, rec is it, le is it legislative? Is it just a mind shift within everybody? What do you think? It has to be both. So for sure, it has to be on the legislative side because we have to have a regulatory framework that puts the burden on chemical companies rather than on the consumer for, for safety. And I mean, how often do you read a story of some kid dying from swallowing a pesticide that the person bought at Home Depot or bought at their local gardening store because it they didn't understand the dangers? And and so that's both a mindset and a and a and a problem with regulation. That we 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 have really dangerous chemicals available for anyone to use rather than just qualified professionals to use. Mm. Uh, that's a problem. And and then. Um, we we just um, need to think about the complexity of our economics, of our agriculture, of our home life, of our environment, in order to be, like you're saying, following a nuanced approach. And if we go back to IPM as an example, it's not one thing. It's many different things to solve the pest problem. And that's that's how we need to, to be operating. Mm -hmm. So instead of coming into the house with a giant sledgehammer and just removing all of our foundational walls, we've got to put some supports up there before we remove those foundations. That's right. And even if we take that home metaphor a step farther, you see examples where people come in with a wrecking ball and they just flatten the house to build the new house. Well, why don't you go first through this house, remove the beautiful brass fixtures and take out that old fireplace and wood stove and and preserve the old wooden beams that have a lot of value. So kind of with everything in life, we should be looking at the beauty of what it is and how do we preserve that beauty and how do we do this in not just a cost-effective way, but making a legacy that will last. How many of us really want to live in this track housing that has no character to it, right? Mm -hmm. We want something beautiful to live in. We want the garden to be beautiful and mm -hmm. and and that's important for our mental health it's important for our, our psychology and you know i really am an advocate for the wilding of gardens gardens mm -hmm. as well and and uh, that's what i've done with my home we have we have wildlife habitat around our house and we get a lot of wildlife at my house we have we have bobcats and coyotes and mm -hmm. javelinas and and we have uh cooper's hawks nesting in a tree in our yard we have great horned owls nesting a block from us and we have hummingbirds and and that's that's because we and our neighbors are not using chemicals and we have a lot of nice habitat for them. So 
these are the kinds of things I think we should be doing and thinking about, and that I think your user, your your listeners would 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 also, you know, you have listeners who are passionate about this topic, and I I would like to see them think about how they can they can do this in their own their own gardens. Totally agree. And what you said about your neighbors not using pesticides is important too, because nature doesn't recognize boundaries. You know, it's not just going to be like, oh, okay, so Frank's house is the place to hang out. No, it's going to be like they spend part of the time in your shrub, then they're going to jump the fence and then hang out next door. So it, it really is taking that um, community mindset to it as well, isn't it? Because one person, it's hard to make a difference. That's right. And even if you if you look at studies that measure pesticide residues on organic versus conventionally grown crops, sometimes you'll find that the organic crops have pesticide residues. And that's because mm-hmm. either there's drift coming from another field onto their crops, or that land was previously used with conventional agriculture and has residues still present in the soil. And so uh, so we always have to think about that. And, and, um, and if you're using pesticides, you should also be thinking about, well, you know, you might say, I don't have kids. I don't need to worry about that. But what about your neighbors? Do they have kids? What about the birds you want to see? So we need to all be thinking more about our community of, of people and wildlife around us. Yeah. Look, we're almost an hour in now. I think it's appropriate to mention the fact that um, what's going on in the US is different to what's going on in Australia is different to what's going on, you know, in South America is different to what's going on in China in terms of legislation. So, you know, and even the organic certifications and stuff like that, you know, I know I'm pretty sure that in Australia you've got to be tested every now and then. But yeah, I think a lot of the time those organic markers as well are a bit of a pay to play thing, unfortunately. It's sort of like, okay, so the organic um, certification is incentivized by farmers signing up. They're not incentivized by turning farmers away. Right. And so there's a premium, right, where you can sell the crop for more with that organic certification. And I've met actually quite a few farmers in my home state of Alaska who don't have that certification, but they're growing their crops organically. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the cost of the certification is beyond their reach. But uh, but that would be another area where perhaps we could have more nuance in the way that we we do things and, and recognize mm-hmm. those efforts where they're occurring. It's another term I really like is agroecology. So it's sort of all in the word there, agro agriculture, ecology. It's taking an ecological view to agriculture. And um, I actually had on Dr. Elizabeth Westway in episode 57, increasing crop nutrient density. She has a test, tests the sugars, the complexity of the sugars is a name for the test. I I don't remember the name, but she can say that um, crop uh, crop nutrients increase the more biodiverse your crops are, the more mycorrhizal connections there are. Um, you know, between different plant types and different, um, you know, fungus and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that, that's a very interesting topic as well, because, yeah, we can talk about food, but then also nutrient density is a completely different topic. It is. It's an important topic, and especially as we are facing a, a obviously rapidly expanding world population, and we need to be thinking about how do we make the most nutrient-rich crops um, and and going back to the agroecology, there are many incredible examples around the world. Like I visited a, quite a few examples of coffee uh, plantations in Latin America where they're g- growing coffee under rainforest shade trees where the coffee grows better. It's higher quality coffee, mm-hmm. but they're also promoting the the rainforest and, and wildlife associated with that forest. And also the insects that, kept the, that provide biological control over the pests of their crops and the birds that provide biological control. So if you think about it ecologically, and of course, this is what uh, Rachel Carson really emphasized in her book, Silent Spring, published in 1962, was was viewing these systems ecologically in order to, to, to maximize the benefits for people and for nature. So I, I think that's a really important point. And it would be great if every farmer thought about his or her farm as an agro ecosystem and how do they how do they really make it a rich ecosystem for both growing the food crops that they're growing and also promoting wildlife yeah look not to throw a whole nother tangent in but i'll just briefly state um this morning oh yesterday morning i posted on linkedin about how um meat is actually ethical and i said i'm not just trying to be edgy i actually think that um pasture raised beef or lamb is a beautiful thing because you've got the ecology there. Like my parents have a small cattle farm and they're incredibly passionate about all the native 
like little plants they've got in their pasture and sort of in the bush out the back where, you know, you can't really graze cattle because it's too steep, but then they've got all these giant gum trees and all this native wildlife. Like there's this little, um, this little native raspberry and the cows just love it and they sort of spread it and it's just a beautiful thing. And then you go down, down the road to the corn monoculture and it's just one plant as far as the eye can see. And, you know, they're, the only way that you can um, control pests there is through the use of pesticides because there's, as you say, there's no small flowers to support the adult life stages of those predator insects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And and I also eat meat. And uh, we were talking before about the economy of your 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 home economics and how you spend your money. And and I've always dedicated that extra money to buying the the um, these free range, you know, grass, um, grass eating, um, animals, whether it's beef or uh, whether it's cows or sheep or whatever it might be. And, and also the, the, in different countries, there are also certifications available where, you know, you're getting meat from, from a, a grower who is also managing that land for sustainability. So mm. we have that here in Arizona and there's, there's similar things around the world. And so you can also know that this is an agro system. This is a, a, an agroecology system in a way. They're they're managing for diversity of that land, promoting wildlife. They're they're doing the appropriate rotation of the grazing so that they're not eroding the soil. Um, and and in many cases, if that land were not being used in this responsible way for growing growing cattle or sheep or whatever, it, it might go to tract housing along a river or it might go to something that's worse. And so like everything else, we need to think about what are the alternatives. Um, mm -hmm. There are, of course, impacts of, of beef eating in terms of climate change and so on, but, but everything is complicated and, and I think there's a place for it. And, and it's part, part of a good, diverse diet. I think the one, um, the methane thing, yes, you can talk about it, but then at least in within that, there's a cycle where the grass is growing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that carbon is being stored and then there's a net gain of carbon within the soil as opposed to when you're dredging out petrochemicals out of the middle of the earth. Um, the other thing as well is I just want to say, I think we focus on the deaths of domestic animals. You know, we, we think about, oh, that horrible moment of death, but I mean, there are 13, 15, 18-year-old cows on my parents' property and they've lived a beautiful life eating grass with their best friends under the sunshine for so long with the most beautiful views you could imagine. And they, one memory that sticks out is that one mother was walking her baby along the dam and she just keeps inching the calf closer and closer and closer to the dam. And then the calf has a misstep and she almost falls in and then she freezes and she's like shaking and the mum looks at her like, see, this is what I'm trying to show you. Be careful around this patch. And these are the animals living out their best life. You know, um, this mother was mentoring her calf. It was really cool to see. Yeah, I would also say there's a place for uh, for hunting and all of this as well. I, I grew up eating a lot of game meat. I grew up in Alaska where it's normal to eat eat caribou and moose and and uh, mountain sheep and things like that. And 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 that's super healthy meat. You know, it's 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 mm. growing up without any chemicals. But also there are classic studies. The best ones coming from the Serengeti grasslands where the the ungulates there actually their their grazing promotes the biodiversity of the system and it's sort of like what you were talking about where if you have a well managed uh, land for cattle and sheep and goats whatever you're growing that you can do it in such a way that is promoting the growth of the grassland and so uh, so so you know this would require a whole other episode to discuss <laughs> yeah. but it, it is a really I, I agree with you it's a it's an important part of 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 uh, of our whole food system. Not that it's for everyone. There are people who are vegetarians for good reason, but it's an important part of our system. Hmm. Absolutely. Again, it's just the nuances. So Frank, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask guests, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Now this can be anything at all. It doesn't have to be on topic. So I guess my take home message from this conversation is I think we're both in agreement that with use of chemicals and with all of these aspects of agriculture and home gardening and home use and so on, that we, we need to look at the nuances. We should do everything in our power to minimize our use of chemicals. And as individuals, we should be behaving in such a way that we're creating sustainability around us, that we're making the world sustainable. And that also means that we're pressuring our governments to have regulations that promote sustainability. 
And I would also say that it's not that the news is all grim. And so I could just take my own country as an example. When I was born in the 1960s in the United States, two-thirds of the nation's waters were unsafe for swimming or fishing. And then we passed the Clean Water Act. And now, half a century later, only about a third of the nation's waters are unsafe for swimming or fishing. When I was a kid, uh, places like the city of Los Angeles had smog alerts on more days than not because the air pollution was so bad. Then we passed the Clean Air Act. Now a city like LA will have three, four, five smog alert days a year. So many aspects of our environment are getting better precisely because we have strong regulations in place, but we haven't gone far enough. And in particular with chemicals, we haven't gone far enough where we have this this crazy production of thousands of new chemicals every year and we can't keep up with understanding their effects on the environment. We have to turn that on its head and have a system where where we test chemicals for safety before we use them. And we also eliminate those that are the most hazardous. Well said. Thank you so much for a great chat, Frank. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate it. If you're spraying on a calendar schedule because otherwise your plans will fail, maybe it's time you took a step back and ask if what you're doing is really working. It's not always easy to switch to an organic, permaculture, hippie approach, because you've already killed off the ecosystem and it'll have to establish again from scratch. Nature abhors a vacuum, and the first things that move in are usually weeds and pests. They'll create the conditions other plants and predatory organisms need to start building more complexity. If you're clever and incorporate the usual tactics discussed on the Plants Grow Here podcast, like IPM, building soil carbon, and putting the right plant in the right place, your garden will start defending itself with minimal help from you. Check the show notes to purchase The Chemical Age, how chemists fought famine and disease, killed millions, and changed our relationship with the earth.